Hey y'all, this is The Immigration Guy with Kyle Farmer. So what we're going to talk about today is some proposed legislation that I think I'm going to keep coming up here for H2B. This was proposed last year during the omnibus time. That's usually when they do these things because, you know, getting an individual bill through Congress is very difficult. And so what they do is during omnibus, which is at the end of the year, they usually stick in all of these bills. And the tailwind behind this one is the reason that I'm discussing it so early. I think that this one actually has some real shot of getting through. It also has some long-term implications for a lot of our clients a lot of our clients are in agricultural construction, so they use the H-2A program. There's a lot of efforts right now to remove construction occupations from the H-2A program. Thankfully, the Department of Labor has not been one of the aggressors in the actual removal of construction, although I think that that's because they really want to be able to. So they've changed some rules They changed the wage rate methodology. Every time I see proposed legislation for H-2A, it always excludes construction occupations, which then has another domino effect here. And so it's important that any of our H-2A construction clients are paying particularly close attention to this and, and the people that rely on them. I see this every time I see proposed H-2A legislation, which actually happens to come up at similar times as the H2B legislation through the omnibus process. And so one of the concerns that I would have is that in some year, the H2A legislation gets approved the same year as H2B and the employers that have been utilizing H2A to serve that function are just out of luck. So that, that's a that's a concern that I have. And that's that's part of what we're doing here is we're trying to look forward for you so that you don't have to worry about that and that you have some assurances that you have access to the labor that you rely on. Uh, this is also important for a lot of other people. If you're someone that uses H2B, I'll just tell you my initial responses to this bill when we get involved. So if you already use H2B, it's great information to have. It's information that you might want to use to plan forward, uh, particularly with growth opportunities. And I'll get into that in a little bit. If you're someone that is using H2B and already doing construction, it's good. If you're someone that is looking to use H2B to get construction workers, it's terrible. We'll get into all that as we go. I'm going to give you guys just my initial reaction. And for those of you that have been with me for a while and, and know how I generally view legislation, it's pretty cynically. I usually, when I'm reading through these things, there's a lot of red flags here and there. And, you know, it, frankly, in, in this legislation, there's some, but this legislation is not all bad, which is normally what I see. When I see the proposed bills for H2A, for example, those are almost all terrible. And the people that are pushing those are, it's almost like they're trying to get legislation through for the sake of getting legislation through. That's not what I see here. So credit to the folks that have been involved at the negotiating table on this particular bill because they're doing a great job. That's, you know, they're doing a great job and you see where they gave and where they gained. And it's, it's a, it is an actual two-sided bill, which I don't see a lot of. So there is that. 
So give credit where credit is due. And I also think that because of that, this actually has potential to pass, which is another reason that I think it's important that we talk about it and that you plan for it. Because I do think that there's an actual legitimate possibility that this thing passes. So let's talk real briefly about some content in the bill. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through what I think that you should be doing here. So let's talk about the bad stuff in the bill first. There's a few provisions in there that are particularly bad. One of them is the specific exclusion of construction occupations. This bill says specifically in the language that it's to be liberally construed. That's not great because if you're a construction company that hasn't used H2B before, and then you come to rely on H2B, say if construction is removed from the H2A program, and you would then be relying on the H2B program. If you haven't been utilizing the H2B program, you would be excluded. And so that's that's really bad. It would make it to where you just don't have access to your labor. It also prevents future people from being involved in the H2B program that have construction occupations that they want to fill, which I think is really bad. I think it, one, that access to labor is just not there. I think that in a lot of areas, particularly remote areas, there's just not the labor. It doesn't matter how much you pay them, the labor doesn't exist. So I don't like that aspect of it. But if you're someone that has used H2B for construction occupations, you'll be grandfathered in. So that's great. That means that this gives you a little bit of time I mean, very little time, but it does give you some time to ensure that if you want to bring in non-immigrant labor to perform construction occupations, then you have the opportunity to, to do so. So that's one thing. So if your construction company hasn't been using H2B, may rely on H2B in the future, it's time. You should get involved with the H2B program. That's one of my recommendations. So one of the other bad provisions in this particular bill is the specific exclusion of meat and poultry processors for slaughtering and processing. Now, the actual implications here, the reality is, is that a lot, a lot of employers that are engaged in this type of work already struggle to access the H2B program because of their inability to demonstrate a peak load or seasonal need. Uh, but there are a lot of them that do. And for those that do, it's fine if they've used it before, but if you're looking to in the future, it's it's not going to be good. So that, that's the other bad thing. Now, the good thing, it broadens the cap exempt definition, which is really, really cool. It broadens who has access to cap exempt workers. If you're an employer that's utilized the H2B program for the prior five years, then you would be entitled to have cap-exempt workers for the highest number of certified workers you had in any of those individual fiscal years. And it, that doesn't require one certification. So let's say that you're an employer and you perform work all over the country and uh, you have 50 labor certifications for 1,000 workers. The 1,000 workers would be cap-exempt. And that's great. That's great for you. That's great for people that are looking to utilize this program in the future because it it makes it to where there's more cap space available. So that's actually really, really awesome. The other thing is, is that it doesn't actually prevent you from increasing the number of workers. The number of workers can increase. It's just that the requested number above the cap exempt would be cap subject. So you would still be fighting for cap space. But again, the cap space wouldn't be nearly as competitive. Uh, so that's also really cool. Now, the, the cap increase is also one of the parts that's pretty cool about this bill. 
So for those of you that have dealt with me going on a old man tangent about the logic of a numerical cap, you would know that I despise numerical caps to begin with because I don't think they make any logical sense. Of course, if everything our politicians did were logical, I guess we'd be in a different situation altogether. But this is what they say about a, a numerical cap. You need a numerical cap because you need to be able to ensure that these jobs are not adversely affecting the U.S. workforce. Okay, well, part of the application process is already demonstrating that you're not adversely affecting the U.S. workforce. And if you do, there are some serious fines associated with that. And so if you're already proving you're not adversely affecting the U.S. workforce, why do you need this arbitrary cap to limit your ability to access the foreign workforce? It doesn't make any sense. Well, I'm going to uh, I'll get off my soapbox and I'll, I'll just tell you that they they plan on increasing the cap to anywhere from seventy five thousand to one hundred and fifty thousand. And it will fluctuate with unemployment. Now, one thing that I'm not sure about here is if this cap becomes competitive, would they be doing any cap increases? That's one concern I would have with the cap is they would say, oh, well, we gave more cap space. And so I, I don't know. But the reality is, is that even an increase in cap to say 125,000, 130,000, because it'll be in that range is really, really good. Much better, especially considering the number of people that would fall within the exemption status. So I think that's great. One other thing that's actually really cool about this is the dual intent element. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with this legal concept, but all visas have what's called an intent element. And it is, do you intend to immigrate here permanently? You would do this through a green card. Let's say you're an investor and you're doing an EB-5 investment, same thing. You would hold out to the U.S. government, I intend on coming here permanently. And what you do whenever you're an H-2B worker right now, which is called, it's a single intent visa, it's a non-immigrant visa, you're holding out to the government, I intend on coming, I intend on doing my work, and I intend on leaving. And so the cool thing about a dual intent element here is it would allow employers to continue to bring up the H-2B worker while they have a green card pending. And that's really, really cool. So that would that would be a, a great aspect to it. And it's something that would really benefit people because one of the reservations that you would have right now if you were filing green card applications for someone that you bring on an H-2B, let's say it's in a different occupation, uh, is when you get to a certain point, they might not be able to come back into the United States on an H-2B visa because they have this pending immigrant intent visa. And it can lock them out for a couple of years. And you don't want that. They're, you're probably doing that for your best employees. So that's a, that's a great thing to know. And I guess the other thing just to be aware of, and this is kind of the, the last thing before I'll start getting to some Q&A, is this bill doesn't make you particularly vulnerable if you're already accessing the H2B program. The thing I don't like about it is it restricts the access to H2B program for future employers. However, you're fortunate enough to have the opportunity to make sure that your business doesn't fall under that. Now, so from from my uh, holistic economic approach, I I, I think, man, I, I don't like the limiting of H2B workers. I don't think that that's smart from an economic policy. But from your individual business if you have concerns about your access 
to non-immigrant labor. So say you're an H-2A employer and you're worried you can't get H-2A workers to perform a certain job function, or uh, you're a company that's considered using H-2B before, but you haven't started using it. It's a really good time to do that because by being included now, you'll be included in the future benefit of that. So that's that's pretty neat. Okay, I'm going to move over to some Q&A. I had one question about these labor summits that we do. We do these labor summits where we bring people in to our area generally, and we just get to know them and introduce them to some other like-minded business owners where, where they can work collaboratively on overcoming any issues they have in their business. And also, generally, we shoot a lot of guns and fish and hunt. So that's a lot of fun, too. So I don't know when we're going to do the next one, but if you want to participate, let me know. Okay. Can you clarify the cap exempt? One thing to remember about filing applications, and this is just advice, uh, is you're, you're filing for an anticipated need. So there is that. But you also want to make sure that when you're filing HCB certifications, you're filing for what's called a bona fide need, meaning there's a real job opportunity that, that's, that's there. Now, I, I understand that jobs fall through, particularly now. I've, I've seen a ton of jobs fall through just because of material deliveries and, and that kind of stuff. But there is this notion of a bona fide job opportunity just to just to make sure everyone is aware of what that means. It means that whenever you're applying for H2B visas, you are attesting to the fact that there is a legitimate job there. And so this provision is meant for the actual certifications received, not the number of people that were actually issued a visa. Cap space is this number divided by two for April and October. I would assume so, but I actually don't recall that from my first reading through the bill. Um, and I actually don't know if that would be... Yeah, I, I, that's something I would have to check on and get back to you. I don't remember. I need to read back through this bill. I don't remember from last time I read through it. Can one do a dual intent with an H-2A visa? So H-2A also is a single intent visa. So it's kind of, it's in the same, same boat as H-2B. Okay, our company applied for H-2B workers for the first time this year, but have not yet been approved. Would that mean that we are grandfathered in or not? By grandfathered in, if you mean you're a construction company, and would you be grandfathered into the H-2B program? The answer is once you receive certification, yes. Uh, but you do have to receive certification to be grandfathered in. But since this is your first year, this is a great distinction to make. Since this is your first year, you want to be eligible for the returning employer exemption. So your application would still be cap subject. How do you foresee the additional demand for H2B caused by construction restrictions on H2A? So right now, there's not construction restrictions on H2A. But if you think about it, let's say that there are 3,000 H-2A construction occupations certified each year. And then if it got rid of H-2A construction occupations, and then that would be forced to go into H-2B, it would make H-2B that much more competitive. It would be a direct translation. Does all this apply to landscaping companies as well? So landscaping companies, this is an interesting question because in theory, no. Uh, in theory, landscaping companies would be a pretty good beneficiary of this legislation, even if they haven't participated in the H2B program before, because they should be coded as a landscaping occupation. But a lot of landscaping companies also do hardscaping. And I could see the Department of Labor trying to encompass that in an SOC code that falls under construction occupations, which would then exclude you. So the mowing of grass, no. The construction of a deck, 
probably. For a first-time H2B applicant, is there a timeline to get approved before this law would take effect? Yes. Just to be perfectly clear, perfectly honest, I obviously do not know if this law will pass. And parts of me are hopeful that it will, and parts of me are hopeful that it won't. But I don't know. I think it does have some wind in the sails, which is why we're talking about it so early on. And you would need to be certified prior to the end of the year, I would suggest. And remember, it has to be a bona fide job opportunity. So file certification very, very soon. We're already coming up on deadlines for October filings, which is when the next cap will open up. And so the, the sooner, the better. When could these potentially take effect next fiscal year? My guess would not be next fiscal year. It would be next calendar year uh, because it comes in the omnibus packages, which are always at the end of the year. How many construction workers are currently working under H2A? I do not know the answer to that. I would guess several thousand, though. Uh, well, maybe not several thousand. Several thousand certified cases, but that doesn't mean it's several thousand individual workers. So I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. Should we up our number of certified workers to have more cap exempt workers in the future? This is be from someone that has used the program for the last five years. You know, if you have a bona fide need for additional workers, then yes, you absolutely should because it would give you more cap exempt people in the future. The the thing is is just make sure you got a bona fide need for the total number of workers requested. And if you do, good, let's go. That's exactly how you should be reading this and planning on this. So that's a great question. Thank you. I actually meant to say that earlier and I, I completely failed to. So thank you. What if one year we request 50, but one year we only had a need for 16, which would be under the cap exempt? So first of all, you got to make sure that you're meeting the first bar, which is, am I an employer that has received certification in each of the prior five fiscal years. And if you meet that, then it is the year, the fiscal year where you had the highest number of approved certifications. Let's say you had uh, a need for 50 people one year and only 10 the next year, the 50 would, would apply. So the, the question is, our biggest problem to date is having individual workers at the embassy denied for no reason. So the State Department is supposed to provide you or provide the worker a document that says the reason for their denial. But the reality is that this reason can be rather arbitrary, such as you didn't demonstrate enough ties to your home country. So we think that you're going to abscond whenever you get there. There's not a great way to ensure that individual workers can come over here because the consulate has a ton of discretion who they approve or deny. But what you can do is if you are consistently getting that denial, which happens particularly from certain countries really often and, and at certain embassies really often, is you can take the evidence with you to the appointment that demonstrates why you have to return. You're, you're, let's say you're uh, married and you bring your marriage license and your wife or, or husband is staying back in their home country, or you have kids in your home country, you bring their birth certificates, you've got elderly parents, you bring pictures and you've got a, a property that you own, that you bring evidence of the property, electric bills, those sorts of things. Uh, and that's great evidence to help overcome that, that hurdle. I do appreciate everyone participating in all the Q&A. It, it's uh a lot of fun and it's always a, a highlight of my week so i i appreciate it and we will talk to everyone soon thank you all for listening to the immigration guy podcast we really appreciate it 
You can find us on our website. Go to www.farmerlawpc.com. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search at Kyle Farmer FLPC. You can find our law firm on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. All you have to do is search for at Farmer Law PC. Go ahead and subscribe to download all the episodes of our podcast. You can download them and listen to them whenever and wherever you want. Uh, we'll be releasing new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, which is apparently a real thing, Amazon Music, Google, and wherever else you get your podcasts. This is not legal advice, so any information that you get from this podcast should not be taken as such. If you are looking for legal advice, you should consult with a competent attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Uh, if you want to schedule a consultation, just go ahead and use the link in the description of this episode. Thank you.